here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am Benjamin Day. And I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Except for Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Oh, I can't imagine why you're <laughs> leaving him out. <laughs> it's not that cruel, actually, because he doesn't need it anyway, because he's going to be in prison. Yay. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I should say there are a lot of people locked up right now who don't belong there. And I am all for the prison abolition movement. Um, but at least let's get Weinstein in there before we, you know, yes. do away with them. He'll have his health care, although there are major issues with prison health care. Yeah. We'll not go down that rabbit we hole now. We won't go down that. I know, right? Because there's too much that has happened this week in the world of Medicare for all, um, especially this Nevada debate. Now, you watch this shit in real time. Um it was saucy. What what did you what was your initial takeaway? I, I, I watched it later, but it was a bloodbath. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren was on fire. In addition to being on fire, um, Elizabeth Warren actually shockingly looked at the health plans of some of her opponents who do not support Medicare for all. Um, it's amazing how little this actually happened. So let's hear E dubs throwing down with uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar at the same time. So I actually took a look at the plans that are posted. Mayor Buttigieg, there are four expenses that families pay, right? Premiums, deductibles, co-pays, and uncovered medical expenses. Mayor Buttigieg says he will put a cap only on the premiums. And that Not means true. families are going to pick up the rest of the cost. Amy, I looked online at your plan. It's two paragraphs. Families are suffering and they need okay, a plan. It. You can't simply stand here and trash an idea to give health care coverage to everyone without having a realistic plan of your own. And if you're not going to own up to the fact either that you don't have a plan or that your plan is going to leave people without health care coverage, full coverage, then you need to yeah. say so. Oh, sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, what did you think about, I mean, we'll, we'll get back to the Buttigieg, but let's focus on Amy Klobuchar for now. What did you think of that epic takedown? <laughs> you know, she was basically just doing the moderator's job here. Mm -hmm. She says that she supports universal health care on her website, and then to prove it, she links to one of her tweets on a rural hospital funding bill. Mm, that's not quite the same, is no. it? No, <laughs> universal health care for all in Springfield. That's like evidence of her universal health care. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the paragraph says that she believes the quickest way to get to universal health care is through a public option that expands Medicare or Medicaid. Oh, maybe she hasn't decided yet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, can we please stop dragging Bernie for not publishing a financing plan when Klobuchar doesn't even know which program she's expanding? Yeah, and uh, Warren later says that this is basically a, po a post-it note that's like, insert your health plan here. Exactly. And that is legit true. Um, she says, uh, Klobuchar says absolutely nothing about her plan. It's not a plan. It's just a, I support public option. 
And I think, in fact, they're mostly running on not Medicare for all, right? We don't really even know what their plans have been because there have been no questions at the debate so far about either Buttigieg or Klobuchar's proposals because the media is so obsessed with the question of cost as if that's like the only thing that matters about a health care plan. We end up ignoring other crucial considerations like how many people would be covered and how would access be affected. Um, and I think that this is like 2016 all over again when Hillary Clinton skated on uh, on a paper-thin plan that got absolutely zero scrutiny. Yeah, no, I, I actually wrote an article in Common Dreams back in March of 2016 called The Disappearance of Hillary Clinton's <laughs> Healthcare Platform. <laughs> and I went through all of the health big national health reporters um, who basically did not support Medicare for All and were backing the Clinton plan. And none of them in any of their articles actually said what is in Hillary Clinton's plan. Um, it was kind of a collection of weird incremental reforms um, none of them were spelled out. Obviously, there was no cost analysis. It didn't say how many people would be covered. Um, and again, she wanted to claim the moral high ground of I support universal health care, but had no plan to actually get there. Same thing with Amy Klobuchar. In the New York Times endorsement of Hillary Clinton that year, actually, they cited specifically her health care plan right. as being <laughs> one of the reasons they were endorsing her. And they said specifically that it was a realistic plan, even right. though it wasn't a plan at all. And they don't know what, what's in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, in a way, I'm proud because the Medicare for All movement has so dominated this debate that it's all that anyone really talks about. So kudos to us. <laughs> but if you want to attack Medicare for All, you actually have to ha have some scrutiny of your plan, right? Yeah, I want to see in the next debate the moderate candidates challenged on whether or not their plans can actually get us to universal coverage because they're claiming to they're claiming that universal health care is absolutely the goal and that we all share this goal of universal health care, and I want to see if their plans are going to get us there. What are the odds that the moderator asks that question? <laughs> We should start a, um, a petition. A gambling pool. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we skipped over Buttigieg, but let's take him next uh, so as sort of a separate issue. I'm going to play a quick clip here. It is a plan that solves the problem, makes sure there is no such thing as an uninsured American, and does it without kicking anybody off the plan that they have. This idea that the union members don't know what's good for them is the exact kind of condescension and arrogance that makes people skeptical of the policies we've been putting forward. Here we have a plan that the majority of Americans support. Wow, that was a lot of righteous outrage. Mm -hmm. uh, ben, what do you think? Yeah, so you know he's referring to his plan here, of course. Um, and the interesting thing to me is that Buttigieg's entire line in this is that Medicare for all is divisive, right? Even though it has strong majority support in the entire population and like almost all Democrats support it. It uh, divides the elites and everybody else. Right, exactly. It divides people making money off the healthcare system and those who are being screwed by the healthcare system. Um, but he and the reason that he's saying his plan is not divisive is because he's mostly pushing a public option. Um, and the public option tends to poll higher than Medicare for all. And that's because it doesn't it's kind of a it, it's like a very vanilla reform. It's like a very slight improvement. Uh, you get like another insurance plan to choose from to buy. Um, obviously, that doesn't change things for most people. Um, but it's less, you know, there's less uncertainty. It polls well. But what he doesn't talk about, and we have new polling on this now, <laughs> is that his plan doesn't just involve a public option. It involves auto-enrollment and retroactive enrollment into the public option. So if you're uninsured and you go to the hospital, for example, you will be retroactively enrolled in a public option plan and then build for it. You then have to pay for it afterwards. 
So um, again, this is in the same theme of like, we're not actually looking at these plans that the other candidates yeah. have come up with and whether they work or whether they're so totally like batshit crazy. Um, so shockingly, Morning Consult actually ran a poll asking people, first, do you support a public option plan? But then do you support a public option plan with retroactive enrollment, which is the Buttigieg plan? And they found that, again, there's pretty strong support for a public option initially. But once you include retroactive enrollment like the Buttigieg plan does, the support drops to 24 percent. Right. Whoa. So that is, uh, I'd say, more divisive than Sounds Medicare polarizing. for all. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm liking that we're finally looking at the alternatives here to Medicare yeah. for all and how bad they are. Imagine being billed for several months of premiums all yeah. at once, or a year, um, or a year. Right. Um, and you know, if you're in that situation, it's probably because you were having trouble keeping up with your payments in the first place. Right. And so it, I don't, I don't think it's going to be that popular with people no. <laughs> who are struggling. Yeah, and you know, his poll um, says that the premium you pay is up to 8.5% of your income. So that's going to be a big chunk of change to get surprise billed by the government at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, and that's basically what it is, surprise billing instead of like a collective health insurance plan that we all are uh, participating in. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this before we move on is that uh, Healthcare Now our organization, we Woo-hoo. do have a page, a guide to the 2020 elections, where we do have write-ups of all of the candidates' positions, including the non-Medicare for all ones. We even did Trump's. So beyond the debates, um, and again, we had this interesting morning consult poll, and there's a couple of other interesting revealing polls that I think are like windows onto our healthcare world and Medicare for all debate. One was a pretty stunning one um, done by NORC. I actually don't know what that stands for. I'm just going to say NORC. Um, at ORC, they, they did a survey of how many people um, have to launch crowdfunding campaigns to pay for their medical care. And based on their survey, they estimate that 8 million Americans have had to launch their own crowdfunding campaign to pay for medical care um, for their own or someone in their household and that 50 million Americans have contributed to a campaign for someone's medical costs. Whoa. What does this tell us about like the reality of healthcare that is not being discussed actually in the debate yeah. stage? Oh my gosh. This is such a far-reaching crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of the moderate candidates like to paint this picture of the US healthcare system that it's really working for most people. And it's really, at this point, our challenge is just getting mm-hmm. the last 12% of uninsured people on some sort of insurance (laughs) Mm -hmm. and not actually dealing with all of the problems of the health insurance industry and not to break what's working, but obviously it's not working. Mm -hmm. Um, The healthcare crisis is touching everybody and not just uninsured people. I I have a personal story, you know, like 20% of Americans Mm -hmm. who have donated to a friend's GoFundMe. Um, While I was living in Denmark and enjoying single-payer healthcare, Mm -hmm. experiencing an almost survivor's guilt uh, about what my friends were going through back in the States, uh, at that time, a close friend of mine in Denmark, um, a healthy 35-year-old woman uh, named Anne, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And so while I was watching my friend in Copenhagen get this you know, fantastic, super well-coordinated treatment that took into account her physical and her mental health, mm-hmm. I mean, when she was diagnosed with leukemia at her doctor's office, it was actually at her GP's office, or her primary care physician's office, mm-hmm. they told her, you have an appointment in one hour <laughs> at 
the the big research hospital in Copenhagen wait a called minute. Riggs Hospital. There wasn't a three month wait time. It was. She didn't ha- have to apply to the death panel um, <laughs> to get care. I realized how <laughs> rationed we are in the United States yeah, <laughs> because uh-huh. a lot of people actually can't get that kind of treatment. It's inconceivable. And here. it is totally yeah. inconceivable. And of course, not only that, but when you have this kind of diagnosis, all of your transportation is also paid for. Wow. So sh- they pay for a taxi to take her uh-huh. to the hospital for every single one of her chemo treatments. Wow. Um, and not only that, but throughout and actually for up to a year afterwards, they have a schedule of mental health sort of checks that she mm-hmm. will go through because, of course, this is a traumatic event. And and that's actually all just part of the integrated care that you can do when you have a single pair. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I was watching, you know, her get all this treatment and understanding more about how a single payer actually worked. I was also watching, mostly through Facebook, my other friend, you know, across the pond back in the States dealing with the same hell. Mm -hmm. You know, her husband uh, also was diagnosed with cancer. And they were going through with chemo and facing mortality. But Mm -hmm. in addition to that, they were also facing financial ruin. Right. And we were talking, we talk about this a lot on Lefty Twitter, how we're the only country that bankrupts sick people. And it's so easy to feel outraged about it just knowing that it happens. But the cognitive dissonance of actually experiencing two loved ones go through the same, you know, traumatic diagnosis, but only one of them lived in a society that afforded her Mm -hmm. the complete dignity uh, through that process. And of course, that dignity being not begging people on the internet for money. (laughs) That was a new sort of level of realization for me. Um, And that was when I that was when I knew I really had to fight for single payer back home because it was just it felt so wrong. Yeah. And it's not just the, the having to ask for money that takes away that sort of takes away your dignity. But they didn't get into this in the survey, but a lot of people fail to meet their fundraising goals. I think most people do when they launch these crowdfunding campaigns. So, so, you know, people's ability to do this, to self-finance their medical care, obviously varies tremendously based on whether you have a lot of friends with money or not. Um, So even this, like, charitable-driven, like, totally inadequate safety net system is very inequitable. Um, And it discriminates against people with low income. It discriminates against people, communities of color, uh, people with disabilities. Um, And they they had this interesting extra question on that survey. Um, It doesn't quite speak to Medicare for all, but they, in addition to asking, you know, have you had to do crowdfunding for medical care or have you contributed? They asked who should be responsible for providing help when medical care is unaffordable. Now, you know, this is this is not a Medicare for all question because it's assuming that there's always going to be people who for for whom <laughs> medical care is unaffordable, right? That's a you couldn't ask this question anywhere else in the developed world except here. Um, but when asked, um, the number one answer from people was government. That government should be responsible for taking care of people when medical care is unaffordable. Sixty percent chose that option. Apparently, we're all socialists, right? And then the last option of all the so they also listed you know hospitals and med- and uh, and clinics. And they also listed doctors. And then the last choice was family and friends. Um, because as you know, having to beg money from your family and friends is actually can be a real strain on your relationships in addition to like your, you know, suffering through this medical crisis and this financial crisis. It sounds like people don't hate the government for <laughs> <laughs> this is what exactly what government is created for. Next up, a new Medicare for All economic study by Yale economists published in The Lancet Uh, finds that Medicare for All would save more than $450 billion, that's every year, and more than 68,000 lives as well. Ben, 
How does this compare to previous studies? What do you think? Well, Stephanie, I thought that uh, no one knows how much Medicare for All is going to cost and that it's going to bankrupt us as a country. <laughs> um, this is just shocking news. Um, you know, this is in line with basically 40, uh, 40 years of economic research on single-payer health care and Medicare for All. Um, we have a list. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm really pimping out our website on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, we have a listing of all the single-payer studies that have ever been done pretty much on our website um, under the education section. And all of them have found that you can cover everyone under Medicare for All and that it will cost less. Um, even some of the conservative studies, um, there's only one or two that have found that it would cost more. And those were hit pieces run during the 2016 election cycle. Mm. Um, and they were really designed to uh, – they were not good economic studies. They don't show what their assumptions were. They don't say where they're getting their data from. They're just like, here's what we found. Um, but this just kind of reflects what most of the credible economic research has already found. Yeah, and it also reflects the reality of the 30-plus countries across the globe that are like, oh, let me check my notes. Right. Yes, can confirm. <laughs> Medicare for all does cost less. Coming back to our common sense reality <laughs> check. Exactly. You don't have to be an economist, <laughs> but if you happen to be, you can also find what we, the rest of us already know. Um, and I just think it's really ironic, getting back to Joe Biden, who you know was left off the hook and these Elizabeth Warren attacks, uh, but his he's constantly attacking Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, saying they don't know how much their Medicare for All plan will cost, saying they don't know how to pay for it. But it turns out that we have uh, basically decades of research. We know more about how much Medicare for All will cost than any of the other plans that are being proposed. Um, you know, if you look at Biden, Biden confidently sends, uh, cites a number how much his plan will cost. So does Buttigieg. But where do those numbers come from? They're not academic studies. They're not published anywhere. We don't know what assumptions they're making. We don't know what data sources they're using. They just have some, you know, someone working on their campaign who's written it on the back of an envelope. And now they're saying, here's our numbers. Believe us. The moderate position is just as much an ideology as anything else because right. it's completely accepted without the same rigor of study that, you know, a more transformative solution mm -hmm. would be. And curiously, the authors of this study, it wasn't just a Medicare for All study. They also looked at what would it cost to do Pete Buttigieg's plan. <laughs> so we're going to pile on Buttigieg here. Yes. Um, so this is Alison Galvani is the lead author of the study. She is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Modeling and Analysis at Yale School of Public Health. Um, when asked about Buttigieg's plan, she said, uh, without, quote, without the savings to overhead pharmaceutical costs, hospital clinical fees, and fraud detection, this is what Medicare for All gives you, Medicare for All who want it, the Buttigieg plan, could annually cost $175 billion more than the status quo, she, she told Newsweek in an interview. That's over $600 billion more than Medicare for All Whoa. per year. So are we still going to go down this cost <laughs> argument line, Pete? Um, is that too divisive for you? <laughs> so the debates have really centered around an attack on the plan that would actually save money mm -hmm. and there's been no scrutiny of the plans that would actually cost more. Why is that? It's almost as if it's not working. <laughs> there are attacks um, as we just saw in Nevada and then we saw in New Hampshire and then we saw in Iowa. Um, and uh, I think that's a good transition to us also. And I, I just want to say one other quick thing. Um, this is not the first economic study of, of Medicare for All, even within the last two years. I yeah. think we've had at least four or five high-quality economic analysis of how you can pay for Medicare for All, how much it would cost. 
Um, this is just the latest one. Um, th there was one study that the Urban Institute uh, published basically to attack Medicare for All mm -hmm. because they are promoting a different incremental plan. Um, but it still found that you could cover everyone and they didn't find savings like the good studies do. They found that it would cost the same, basically, um, to cover everyone, which still, I think, morally, how do you not do that? Um, but Elizabeth Warren actually used the Urban Institute's analysis for her financing proposal. Hmm. Um, so she kind of used the anti-Medicare for All study to launch a Medicare for All proposal, which I thought was kind of clever. It was taking away the, the wind out of their sails. Absolutely. I love the reverse co-option. <laughs> right. Like, they've been co-opting us, and now we can turn it right back around right. on them. They're co-opting our language, yeah. and we'll steal their shitty medical, their economic <laughs> analysis. <laughs> so, um, Stephanie, should we get to Nevada? Sure. The most exciting recent thing. Mm-hmm. The Nevada caucus was unique in that this feud between the Culinary Union and Bernie Sanders over Medicare for All, um, this is really the first state where Medicare for All was used as like the primary weapon to go after a candidate. And the media loved it. Oh, man. It was a media feeding frenzy. <laughs> and there was an assumption, I think, that Medicare for All would be used to undermine his support, especially among casino workers, which is a huge population in Las Vegas. Now, this is how Bernie Sanders addressed the issue of culinary health care in the debates leading up to the election. Let me be very clear to my good friends in the Culinary Workers Union, a great union. I will never sign a bill that will reduce the health care benefits they have. We will only expand it for them, for every union in America, and for the working class of this country. Ooh, class warfare. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is so much more savvy a politician than either of us would ever be. <laughs> that was very high road. Uh, the Absolutely. people who have been attacking him, he said, my good friends. Um, but uh, in addition to that, uh, we have, uh, I mean, obviously Bernie cleaned up in the elections in Nevada. I think he's got about 50% of the votes. Uh, so wonderful to see. Right now, we don't know uh, what the total, uh, what the second place is going to look like. Um, but we also have entrance and exit polls from Nevada, just like we did from Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, and the results are pretty striking, given that frenzy over Medicare for All and the Culinary Union. Uh, the NBC's entrance and exit polls found that 62 percent of voters in of Democratic voters in Nevada support Medicare for All. And that is actually higher than the numbers they recorded in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, that was 57 percent and 58 percent in New Hampshire, uh, sorry, 57% in Iowa and 58% in New Hampshire. So- uh, And neither of those states had this huge public union fight right. over Medicare for All. You might say that it, it backfired <laughs> <laughs> on those trying to use Medicare for All as a weapon against candidates like uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So what do you read into this? Well, one news piece caught my eye. A majority of union members caucusing on the Las Vegas Strip backed Sanders on Saturday, who is, of course, the candidate running most unapologetically on Medicare for all. Um, and so, yes, maybe the attacks by union leadership and all of the media lies and all the attacks by the other candidates on Medicare for all did spectacularly backfire. And I hope to see as much press about that this week as we saw about the culinary union's Unlikely. opposition in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Medicare for all is hopefully at 
the least resilient to establishment attacks, mm -hmm. but also that when a conflict arises around this and it really sort of comes to the fore and people have to struggle with whether or not to support Medicare for all, you know, exposing people to potential attacks about Medicare for all, like, you know, you're going to lose your health care, um, that ultimately the movement is and can do a great job of inoculating people against fear-driven attacks mm -hmm. and convincing people that it's worth, you know, quote, giving up their mm -hmm. <laughs> union plan for something much better. Yeah, and this, I think, was a extraordinarily rare case where a political machine in Nevada went into operation and basically lost to a grassroots movement that has no massive resources or advertising <laughs> capacity. And I was shocked in the NBC News write-up of their poll, they had this paragraph tucked in there, which I swear to God, we would not have heard something like this two weeks ago, much less within the last two years from like a mainstream uh, news outlet. Um, they said, that helps explain the strength of Bernie Sanders in all three states, and it indicates that rival candidates who have staked their primary campaigns on opposing Medicare for all, most notably Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, may have miscalculated. <laughs> you don't say. Many Democratic voters in 2020 are less interested in candidates who talk about what is politically possible and more interested in candidates who seek to change what is possible. Whoa. That's some insightful shit. <laughs> I am concerned about the fate of that commentator. Can yeah. someone check on him? That anonymous writer may have already <laughs> been fired by the time this the podcast last we'll is released. See of him, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know what they're saying at the end there is like, uh, you know, Sanders and Warren. I feel like understand how social movements work, right? Mm -hmm. That they are not just there to squeak through whatever policy we can get through right now in Congress. They want to be part of the movement that changes what we are able to get through in Congress. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but I feel like the stance of Medicare for all, it acknowledges people's grievances about mm -hmm. the current system in a way that tinkering around the edges will never mm -hmm. do. And I think that those candidates um, have definitely calculated correctly in yeah. uh, mm -hmm. stepping out to reach out to people who feel aggrieved. Yeah. And I, the last thing, my last thought on this, these polls is that Clearly, 62%, that's way more than voted for, for just for Bernie Sanders yes. or for Elizabeth Warren. Um, and my memory from 2016 is that the Clinton-Sanders battle was so bitter <laughs> and people so aligned themselves with either camp um, that I felt like a lot of people who ended up in the Clinton camp who longtime historical Medicare for All supporters changed their positions to support Clinton. Like this happened with Paul Krugman. This happened with Kenneth Thorpe, the economist who had written a bunch of pro-Medicare for All studies and then came out with like an anti-Medicare for All study, allegedly an economist. You mentioned that uh, Ezra Klein from Vox did kind of the same about face. But it feels different this time. It feels like Medicare for All has remained resilient across mm -hmm. many different camps. And maybe that's because there's so many candidates still in the race and it's not like a bitter one-on-one -on -one battle. Mm -hmm. I don't know. but Yeah, I was worried when the way that Clinton sort of portrayed Bernie as, you know, making promises about things that would n never, ever happen, like, for From example, our intro. Medicare for All, <laughs> exactly, um, that those things would become to be associated with the left failing mm -hmm. and the defeat of Hillary Clinton. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's actually happened at all. Yeah, and I think the other thing could be that I think a lot of people backed Clinton in 2016 because they saw her as more electable. Yeah. Right. They there was an association with centrism as and electability, mm -hmm. and then 2016 happened. <laughs> Four years later of Trump, 
And I think people are rethinking that position as well. And that's changed the calculus for Medicare for All as well. Yeah. All right. So I think that's it for this week. I hope you guys will check out healthcarenow.org where you can learn all about the presidential candidates' positions. You can learn all about all the single-payer studies out there. And... and <laughs> And you can also sign up to be part of the Patients Over Profits Pledge. Hell yeah. Uh, that NNU and Healthcare Now and many other partners are running right now. So, you know, please email us at podcast at healthcare-now.org and we'll plug you into that campaign. Talk to you all next week. <laughs>